Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap. I got into the movie making business by being a real estate entrepreneur, but also because I'm a big movie fan. I get a huge kick out of watching blockbuster movies that I watch being made at Black Hall. COVID-19 has put a temporary crimp in production, hasn't it for everybody? But some amazing movies will be shooting at our studio soon, and I'll have some amazing folks on the podcast. I'm also into ethics and philosophy, and I think you'll see those themes throughout the podcast. So you're wondering, where exactly does the movie business and philosophy come together? That's the journey I want to take you on on the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'll bring you guests from both worlds, and I think you'll be surprised at how much philosophy goes into the world of making movies. Plus, you'll get an inside look at the new Hollywood of the South, right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Give a listen. I think you'll enjoy what you hear. I'm happy to have you along for the ride on the Black Hall Studios podcast. Next up on the Black Hall Studios podcast is my friend, Mr. Matt Baxter. An entrepreneur on fire, Matt is a Michigan boy done good. Five years ago, Matt dove into the world of designing remote recruiting systems and operations. He built a startup, Competitive Wedge, Wedge for short, on money that he earned while day trading in college. Remote recruiting is hot right now because of the pandemic, as well as the global cultural shift to remote working. Let's talk with Matt about the pressures of being an entrepreneur, raising investment money, the hopper popper, no, it's not microwave popcorn, his love of country music, elephants, and the B-52's Love Shack. Listen and learn with my guest, Matt Baxter. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm here today with recently announced 2020 Entrepreneur of the Year in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Matt Baxter. Matt, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. I thought we talked about not mentioning that, but thank you for having me. It's <laughs> good to be I'm here. <laughs> mention that. You're world famous in Grand Rapids. Well, I was about to say, you've got entrepreneurs, entertainers, you got all the famous people, and you got a schmuck like me coming in Atlanta recording this. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're far from a schmuck. Tell these guys what you've been working on on the entrepreneurial side. Tell us a little bit about Wedge and tell us about the Hopper Popper. <laughs> so my main business, Wedge, is a video interviewing tool. So for the, the tech gurus out there, we are a SaaS product. We sell software to HR companies, talent acquisition people who want to leverage video, a part of their hiring process. The biggest value add is if you hate phone screening, we can turn you into a superhero. There you have it. There you go. Right. So we, we help companies hire. We do so in a, you know, help people in an efficient, effective way. And then a side project um, that turned into a, a, a fun, gained some steam was the Hopper Popper, which is a toilet seat foot pedal razor designed so that you don't have to touch the toilet seat again when you go pee. Right. So admittedly, in the grand scheme of life, COVID was pretty good to both businesses. Uh, 
everything went virtual pretty quickly and also people don't want to touch toilet seats so well wedge, wedge has had a little bit of the zoom effect right for sure so when COVID first broke out basically companies had three reactions either they were hiring like crazy you know the essential businesses or they froze had no reaction at all or they were laying off but the essential business hiring like 10 times what they were doing before so we had people rushing to us like crazy saying we we need to digitalize we've only been hiring in person how do you know what do we do next so we had a lot of people come to us that way and then now as the world starts to reopen you have the second ripple effect of saying you know we have no idea how to hire you know online we have no idea how to turn this whole thing remote so we've had a really really fortunate time of saying you know, rapid growth in the midst of a pandemic, which has been pretty interesting. So don't want to be the funeral home director smiling by any means, but it's it's modernized. It's definitely modernized our, the, the recruiting process, which has been fun. Hey, listen, COVID's been good to Elon Musk, so it's okay if it's been good to you. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> Someone told me recently that Elon was uh, increasing his net worth like $10 billion a day. Oh, it's unbelievable. Him and Bezos combined it. It's like, they they their growth per day matches a lot of countries gdps it's good to be them wolf i love america exactly <laughs> um let's talk a little bit about hopper popper tell me about the evolution where did this idea come from and then we'll all ask a bunch of questions about how it developed so if you want the unfiltered idea i may or may not have you know had a beer or two or something like that and walked into my cousin's house who bit backstory as i mentioned holland michigan is a very central place for manufacturing so my uncle's company is a sub-assembly manufacturing company for these big three furniture manufacturing companies so dj my cousin is an engineer basically groomed to take over that business and has has a mind for that so i walked in and i'm kind of you know more the maybe out there idea person he's more the practical get it done so i walked in and i said dude i'm so sick and tired of touching pee you know, you do the awkward, put your foot on the pedal and raise it up with your foot. You know, it's just a weird thing. And I was like, there, there's got to be something better. So, of course, I don't know, we might have had another beer or something like that and kept talking about it. And the next day he went to Menards and chopped up some PVC pipe and made the first prototype. So we still have that sitting out there and then kept talking. And this was two years ago. Two things real quick. This, mm -hmm. You know, this podcast is based in Atlanta, so we're not allowed to shop in anywhere other than Home Depot. Of course not. So nobody knows what Menards is. We're working on getting into Home Depot, so it's not Menards. Excellent. Exactly. Just right. so everybody knows. And then um, you live in Holland, Michigan. I live in Holland, Michigan. Right. So we're known for context. tulips and uh, Dutch shoes, and, so everybody's aware. And beautiful Dutch women. And beautiful Dutch women. Western Michigan. Yep, that's it. That's why I stuck around. Okay, so you come up with this idea. He makes it into a PVC pipe prototype. Yep. What's the next step? So you're catching this at like the best time ever, because first step was we went to basically suppliers that they had access to with his um, his uncle's company. And we made our first couple prototypes, excuse me, and um, we put a couple things together and started testing, testing, testing. And then we got a couple early buyers, uh, which were very supportive in the process and got to give some shout outs to Black Hall Studio for that. But, was uh, Black Hall Studio is your first major industrial buyer? Yes. Is that bad that I'm telling you? No, 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 no. I knew that already, I think. Exactly. No, I think verbatim, we, we talked about that beforehand. But yeah, so Black Hall was the first. And so the, the special part about that is that allowed us to truly test it in an unbiased market. So as a you learn in the entrepreneurial world, you get a lot of people who give you a pat on the back and, wow, that's such a great idea. I would definitely buy it. And not a lot of people actually do. And so to get 
true product feedback is that like there's nothing better. And so, so talk about some of the things that you learned. So we, we installed all these at, at Black Hall Studios. It's a new idea. Mm-hmm. You put them in here. Tell me all the things we told you sucked about it. So number one was the pedal moves around. So our logic was, so the first feedback we got was, okay, we're going to have to clean the thing. So we pitched this thing in front of a couple hospitals and their comment back to us was, hey, if you can demonstrate on a, on a quantitative process that this is going to reduce our level of cleaning rather than increase it, we'll buy for all of our different hospitals. So that's one of the things we're working through as we speak. And so when we first um, created it, we wanted the pedal to be freestanding to move around so that you can clean it. You didn't have to deal with removing or anything like that. And so when we presented it to you guys, you came back and said, we actually want it to be stationary. And that was just a lesson that we learned. And so we came back and we said, okay, let's make a stationary, you know, a bolt shoe in that you guys don't mind drilling. And that was our first feedback to say, you guys don't mind actually drilling into the floor to have the thing remain. Yeah, because the problem was is that I would walk in to, to utilize the hopper popper mm-hmm. and the pedal would be laying on the ground sideways. And that defeats the whole purpose. And that defeats the whole purpose. You got to reach down and grab that. That doesn't help anybody. And this is my own product. I'm going to say that's terrible. That's a horrible experience. And so we came back and we said, yeah, we actually want to shoot. We want to build a shoe that it locks in. And then what we learned is there's actually some friction points when you lock it in. So now backstory, actually, this is a great time to catch up to speed. We're now looking at a more injection molding based process or metal stamped. And so we're looking at a couple overseas suppliers for that. When uh, the travel restrictions lift, we have fortunately in Holland, one of our advisors uh, started the big Joe comfort research and Matt young is they've sold a billion dollars worth of bean bags. So he's one of our, uh, one of our advisors and he's like, yeah, I'm going to put you on a plane. We're going to go to China and get some suppliers. So you can take this thing and scale it. So we're having some fun. Do you really want to make it in China? Not really. I mean, can't we figure out a way to make it in the United States? Um, offline conversation? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why does that have to be offline? Uh, it's one of those things that I think that uh, we need to sort out how to... The labor cost is the biggest problem. So you can purchase like injection moldings that work phenomenally well that are relatively similar price, but then the person who's managing that is seven times more expensive to do the same exact, exact job. So it right, but don't you think? Don't you think at this day and age, post COVID, post all the craziness we've had with Asia, that Americans would rather spend five dollars extra on a hopper popper that was made in the United States? I would hope so. I would. I mean, I'd rather buy something that's American made and not be afraid to spend a little extra dollars on it. I don't think anybody's afraid of that. I don't, I don't think anybody's looking for the lowest possible price if they think that. Paying a little extra means it can be made in America. So I think the in order for that logic to work, it has to be a localized purchasing, like a buying experience. So if I'm buying something in a mega store, I don't really care where it was made. But if I'm buying something from my local grocery store, my local hardware store, then absolutely I'd lo- I want it to be American made. I, I, I don't think that's... I think that, it, that if the Hopper Popper was able to say on its packaging, manufactured parts, labor, assembly... United States of America. Boom. Put a I think that's on. worth five bucks. I think so too. Do that. Okay. Injection mold. Holland, Michigan. I'm serious. Or, or Atlanta. Or maybe. Let's do it in Atlanta. Let's do it. We'll create a manufacturing base in Atlanta. Yep. And we'll source all of the materials in America. I think that's a better story in this day and age. I'm in. Done. I think every American. Science, seal it. I think every American understands on a deeper level, level today that their economic decisions and spending have direct impact 
on their fellow Americans' uh, work opportunities? I agree. My one thing that's demonstrated otherwise would be Amazon in the midst of the COVID world. So Amazon has been obviously doing as well as Amazon's done, partially because people, I mean, obviously don't want to go to the local grocery store when they can have it delivered to their house in a day. But I also think that that's, that would be my one, like, I wish people, the same people who are saying I want to shop locally are the same people ordering off of Amazon, which is really frustrating. Well, but I don't think Amazon has, from an American zeitgeist perspective, Amazon became just a de facto decision. And I don't think American psychology is caught up to thinking about where all the stuff from Amazon comes from. Exactly. So we're close, you know, so what I'm, what I'm advocating for is I think that there's opportunity in this country for products that can specifically call out that they are sourced, assembled, manufactured in the United States of America and that is, we're at a time in, in, in the life of our country where that would mean something to people. I hope so. Right? Even if it's on Amazon, and but then on that product description, they'd read it and they'd think, oh, I hadn't really thought about like where my stuff was manufactured. I think there's, I think that, that there's a lot of stuff that we don't think about. And when it's called to our attention, then the question is, are we psychologically ready to have it called to our attention? And I think at this moment in time, we're psychologically ready for it to have that call to our attention, have it be valuable. I think I think for the first time, people are starting to actually realize the repercussions of businesses are closing because what I purchase is $2 cheaper online versus $2 cheaper in the store or $2 more expensive in the store. And I think that's one of the, obviously nobody hopes a pandemic happens, but I think that's one of the first times that's been a smack to the face that says, you know, 30% of businesses are closing because you aren't shopping there. Like that is not somebody else's problem. That is your problem. You need to go to that restaurant and not go to the the major chain and not saying that major chains are bad, but like that is exactly why. And so I, I, I'm well, if you ex- value it, if you correct. value it, then show that you value it. Exactly. Don't just value it with lip service. Right. But if you don't value it, well then that's okay. It's America. Stuff fails every day. That's exactly right. But if you value it, use, you, you know, Spend your money there. <laughs> that it's a, yeah, I know. I agree. So the other side is, is that no matter how good the Chinese solution sounds on the surface, I'm yet to see a product that's manufactured in China that comes back and is better than what it can be manufactured in America. Price aside. Price aside, I 100% agree. And yeah. actually, I think uh, Africa is 15 years away from being the modern day China. Really? So if you think about, this is a touch esoteric, but if you think about the Industrial Revolution in the United States, we went to China because labor costs started to rise and started to rise and started to rise. So we outsourced it over there. I think the same thing is actually happening with China outsourcing their expensive, relatively for them, their labor force to Africa, where it's a resting population of tons of people who are looking for work. And I I think in the next 15 to 20 years, we're going to see a major shift of manufacturing surge in African countries. Where did you get this idea? Um, I don't know. Probably taking a shower one time no. thinking about it. Oh, you were just thinking about it. You <laughs> yeah, didn't read it somewhere. No, no, no. I was just thinking about you it. You were just I, thinking about the idea. I mean, does 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 Africa have the kind of like energy infrastructure 
to build out that kind of manufacturing base? I don't know yet, but I think, I mean, a lot of China was funded by the United States. A lot of the Chinese manufacturing was funded by the United States, not necessarily directly like, hey, let's subsidize your manufacturing, let's subsidize your factories, but literally saying, hey, we're going to make purchases that are going to happen there. And that's when the infrastructure began to rise, right? So much of the need of Chinese manufacturing goods came from United States dollars purchasing those. I think the same could be true, would happen with... uh, Chinese manufacturing saying, hey, we're going to purchase or outsource the labor costs here, or we're just going to set up a factory and bring people in. Oh, wait, there's a lot of workforce that we can get for cheaper here as well, too. Sure. I mean, I think the the complicating factor there is that the Chinese, despite whatever commentary we want to have about their type of government, (laughs) has had a very stable government and a huge country that can finance all sorts of things because of its huge base. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if there's an African country that has enough stability or financial base to be able to finance things that could then be the Shenzhen. Good word choice. Right? Like the that. Shenzhen of, <laughs> of, of uh, Africa. I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong, but my when you said that, I just started thinking about like, I was doing an inventory in my mind of all the countries in Africa, mm-hmm. and I was trying to imagine who might be able to step into that role and be a Vietnam, right, of Africa. Right, and I, I more think of it in the sense of, like, we're going to get to a point where we're seeking a idle workforce, and where is that next idle workforce? I think China was the idle workforce for the United States. I think Africa is going to be the idle workforce for China at some point, maybe not quickly. Do you think the Chinese don't have enough work you think that i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of chinese that aren't working i think what changes that is labor laws and i don't know if chinese will implement any of that but i think america outsourced to china because there wasn't the labor laws that made things so expensive right and so i think i'd be curious what happens i mean i don't know we'll see well i mean it's a fascinating i mean i'd certainly love for us to find other sources of labor for sure but at the same time, I think there's so much labor. As long as we can keep our labor laws in check in the United States, that we don't become the failure yep. that is the socialist governments in Europe, where it's almost impossible to fire somebody, if, even if they're failing miserably at their job. Uh, that's such a competitive disadvantage. That as long as we can avoid that kind of nonsense, then I don't know why we wouldn't spend the money to put... Americans back to work at higher wages and then just increase the prices. That's okay. Yep. We can all afford it. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't need to be uh, trying to save on the cost of a hopper popper. Right. Is it, is it 29 99 or is it 34 99? Exactly. Right. If I want a hopper popper, I'm going to buy a hopper popper. And in fact, I might feel even better about it. If I know that it's made in Atlanta, Georgia or Holland, Michigan, and it's uh, made not only in parts, but assembled, right? Um, in the United States, I think that, that I'm not the only one who'd feel great about that. Exactly right. All right, so you learned that your pedals were needed to be affixed. Mm-hmm. At least uh, at Black Hall, we needed that because yep. it, you know the hopper popper becomes not usable right. if the pedal's on the floor because then I have to pick up the pedal and then... Defeats the whole defeats purpose. Defeats the whole not, purpose. Not touching anything. What else did you? What else have you learned? Because I mean, the, the first prototypes, I will say, are manufactured very, very well. Great metal. Everything is like high quality. 
Um, so from that standpoint, I bet you have gotten all good feedback. Yeah, that. So our feedback on it was designed very with a heavy utility focus. So let's make this thing work, right? The round two that we're going through is now how do we make this thing look sexy? When you look at it, it looks mechanical, right? It looks like it is something that you actually manufactured and made, which is great. But to take that to the consumer market, so part of this conversation relates to the fact that we've basically identified three different markets. There's the direct consumer, you buying it for your own home. You've got the commercial market, you know, places like Black Hall or places, you know, hotels or whatever that may be. And then you have the medical market. Medical market gets a little finicky with ES and a lot of different regulations, a lot of red tape, but bigger money in it. You could charge 200 bucks for if, if, if it fits all their different, you know, rules that you need to have and regulations that they have. But so what we're now working through is how do we turn it from prototype well-made to now looks awesome. Like you have a... Now, why do you think that my toilet seat popper needs to be sexy? I don't think it needs to be sexy. I think you need to, uh, I I think you need to have it not look like, so, so I think the best way to I think the best way to say this is it doesn't need to look sexy, but it needs to either be low profile or doesn't look mechanical. I think the mechanical make it makes it look like stick out in a bad way. Whereas if you can create it to be lower profile, I think that that adds a lot of value as well too. One of the major things on that note we're talking about is have the seat go all the way up and have the seat come all the way back down. But that requires two different pedals or some force that requires it to come back down. So the problem with that is either you're getting into two different pedals, makes a higher profile, maybe that's a problem, maybe that's not, or you're creating like a seesaw almost that basically says, I push one side, it raises it up, push the other side, it comes back down. So that's certainly something that we're considering as well, but just a little bit of a bigger profile of a, you know, something that sits there. I kind of like that, a seesaw. Oh yeah. Right? So then then you have one side that says up Mm -hmm. and one side that says down. Arrow down. Right? And so then it's, but it's affixed to the floor and you walk up and you step on the up arrow mm-hmm. and it goes all the way up. Oh yeah. And then when you're finished, if you're a gentleman, then you press the down Emphasis arrow. on the gentleman, <laughs> right? Right. So that's when we've done, so what we, ha- when we've done product feedback interviews with people who have bought the product that we didn't, you know, it wasn't my mom trying to support me, but when we've done genuine product feedback, what people have said the biggest value that it gains is it actually encourages somebody to put the seat back down. So that is a huge selling points to moms because now they- Wait, fall. wait, wait. What encourages them to put the seat back down? When you raise it all the way up and you don't have to, when it's something that doesn't push it all the way back, but you press it down and it raises partially up. Three quarters. Exactly. Then it automatically goes back down. Co- oh, automatic- That's better for moms. So moms love that. And so now we finally started talking to a bunch of different people and they've come back and said, not only does this you know, make me not have to pee on the seat anymore, but also it automatically is a reason the toilet seat comes back down. So now, although, pitch- although if mom doesn't have to touch the toilet seat, does she care if it's up? No. Uh, I don't know if I can answer that as not a mother. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe maybe they still care. I think they do. Well, I, I definitely, I, I mean, know. Do you, you don't care. I don't care if I walk up to the toilet and the toilet seat's down. I know I have a sister and a mother who have nagged at me for 26 years of my life for leaving the toilet seat up. And so I think if I automatically had something that's worth, you know, whatever the price point is for me not to get nagged at by my mom and sister. Trust me. I mean, I grew up in a house with one brother, a dad who is a ex recon Marine and a mother who grew up on a cattle ranch in Nebraska. 
So um, I had an ex-girlfriend who worked for years to try to train me on this in, in putting the toilet seat up. It wasn't going to happen. God, it was terrible. I know. It was like an ongoing joke. I mean, for her, it was frustrating. But for me, it was an ongoing joke. Oh, you intentionally leave it up. No, right? no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not that bad. No, but <laughs> I guess it's, it might be worse that I couldn't like get it through my, my brain to... Uh, Pay attention. Well, so so that's when we start to think, you know, maybe the maybe the sexiness isn't the term, but the profile of the product and the user experience of the product and what that looks like is something that now we're spending a lot of effort and energy on to say how how can we make this look as fits into the bathroom already without mace like we want people to look at it and know what it is, but not like look so out of place. How can we make it fit into the restroom experience, but also functionally work really well too? I think that um, it'd be worth doing a little bit of study from a female perspective and, and some like some testing around this question of, of whether or not women would be annoyed if they walked into the bathroom and the toilet seat was up, but they could step on a button and have the toilet seat come down and they didn't have to touch anything. Would they still be mad at the Would man? Would they still be mad at the man? And because the hopper popper as it works today, I like it. I like the three quarters. I'm fine with it. But I know some people want it to go all the way up. All the way up. And so all the way up is psychologically easy for everyone. Mm-hmm. Right? So some people, like I can take the three quarters. But if it was all the way up, it wouldn't bother me. No. So I'll take that all the way up. So then the real question then becomes... Is is it annoying for the woman if it's left all the if way? If it's up? left all the way up, but all but they don't have to touch it. They just have to step on the button that says "Bring the toilet seat back down." That's it. I don't know. I think that's worth exploring because well, that that fixes a huge. So let's remove the let's remove the uh, human or sorry, let's remove the household, you know, husband wife interaction, and let's say I walk into a public unisex restroom. That thing's all the way up. I've got nobody to be mad at other than the person I didn't know who was in there beforehand. Now I can walk in. But why am I mad if I just have to step on a button and it goes back down? You're not anymore. That's what I think. Solved. All right. So right now that's not the way. That, right now it's still three quarter. Exactly. What else is, uh, been, have, you, have you evolved from the original design? Those are the biggest ones we're working on right now. The sleekness factor is a big one. And then also just the, are there minor things we can do to, to, uh, quantitatively understand the cleaning factor so for example do you put a plastic bubble do you put the actual pedal around a plastic bubble so that so one of the grossest parts about the restroom is actually the flush so when you flush stuff sprays everywhere so within six feet radius of any toilet flush you're going to get debris on stuff that's why you never want to have your toothbrush come on so i work in hr and i work in toilets so this but it is has to be my, below the rim of the toilet no that's what? the gross part. It sprays. Come on. So what we've talked about, for example, and, and that's why it makes zero sense that commercial toilets don't have a lid. Does the CDC know about this? They sure do. They just they came out with an article that mentions how aerosol spray, when you clean the toilet with aerosol spray, it sprays out. So all of a sudden you got aerosol all over the walls. It's a six foot radius of a flush. So what we've talked about is do we potentially have a... We are ruining a lot of people's days right now. I know. Sorry about that. I hope everybody's having a good day. Shouldn't tell them to follow me on social because I'm going to get ripped on. (laughs) (laughs) We'll definitely give your social media out later. Exactly. Exactly. Nightmares for the, for the uh, people that are germaphobes. And that's what we're here trying to solve. We're just, you know, so, so one thing that makes zero sense is why commercial toilets don't have a lid. I need six feet distancing from the toilet. When it flushes. Wow. So that's why you don't want to have an exposed toothbrush next to the sink of the bathroom. God, I think I've been living with this problem for decades. (laughs) 
That's why your breath always smells bad. Oh, <laughs> That's why I'm so healthy. <laughs> My immune system is robust. Exactly. That's why you probably didn't get COVID is just because you've been, you know, dealing with the flush of the toilet all the time. <laughs> Only because my toothbrush is so dirty. Yeah. I don't want to talk about your toothbrush anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about how you're going to solve my bad breath. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> all right. So, um, so keep going on this. I'm, I'm kind of freaking out a little bit about the six foot radius, but keep going about what that has to do with the hopper popper. Are yes. you going to try to close the lid? Are you going to try to create something that closes the lid as well as the seat? Well, so it's more it's more an educational standpoint. If, if your argument is related to cleaning, you need to solve the lid problem. So if you're a commercial restroom, you should buy a bunch of lids. Or we've talked about potentially coming up with a prototype that has the lid built in. So when you're purchasing the hopper popper, you're also buying a lid that automatically comes on. So that for your commercial problem, you're saying, oh, I've got 90 toilets sitting at Black Hall. 87 of them don't have a lid anymore. Awesome. We can solve your problem by saying, hey, we're going to have a built-in something related to that. I mean, that's one option. But it's doesn't just, the lid just make the seat more contaminated? What the lid does is it contains the spray. To the seat. Exactly. Which then is cleaned. One would hope. Well, let's think about that for a second. So imagine I've got a lid. Just I don't have the lid. I just have the seat. And I've got this six-foot spray radius. I guess I'm still getting debris on the seat. But if I put the lid on, then doesn't all the debris stay on the seat? Yep. But it limits the cleaning. It at least isolates the cleaning. Got it. Isolates the cleaning. Man, a seat is a lot dirtier than I imagined. Oh, my goodness. The bathrooms are disgusting. Wow. Okay. So um, so what's, the, what's your sense right now about lids, no lids on the hopper popper? Um, it's... Something, it really, what we're trying to sort out is, does the majority of our product benefit come into the commercial space or come into the residential space? And not that we can't straddle, not that we can't do both, but they just have different needs, right? If we're talking about majority of in-person toilets, or sorry, majority of consumer-based toilets already have lids. Very different problem set. And people are less concerned about cleaning the pedal in that circumstance. That we can solve, we can be the product we exactly need to be in the commercial or in the, in the residential space by having to come all the way up and all the way down two pedals done. Why do you think they originally put lids on residential toilets? Was it for sanitation or was it for aesthetics? And is a lid as annoying to a woman? I guess it wouldn't be as annoying. Like sitting on the lid wouldn't be as annoying as falling in the toilet. Honestly, my, my bet on the lid, my bet on the lid reaction is that, Somebody walked into the bathroom and didn't want to see somebody else's streaks. Until they had to lift the lid. Until they had to lift the lid. But, but, then, but, but, then, the, but then they only have to lift the lid if they have to use the toilet. Exactly. So then they'll live with it. Right. That would be my guess. I actually have no good... That'd be worth looking up. But my, my reaction to that would be somebody thought, I'm using... You know, I'm going in to wash my hands to a nice fancy restroom and I don't want to look over to somebody else's streaks sitting there without having to, you know, intentionally go and use it. I can't remember the last restaurant restroom i would have gone into that had a that had toilet seats or had toilet covers it had seats but no covers yeah no commercial bathroom no commercial toilet has a lid you're just saying that it would this was an aesthetic marketing tool to housewives you this is your speculation that's my speculation interesting i'd love to know the history there we should 
that's worth the rabbit hole we're about to go down on at some point to go through and research that. No, you should go through that. And, and, and then, I mean, you went down the rabbit hole of the six-foot spray. Yeah, exactly. Well, what we were trying to understand is what's the grossest part about the toilet? Underside of a lid. A gr- uh, the underside of the lid is the grossest It's disgusting. Part. Yeah, disgusting. And so what we learn is why do you have to clean the pedal if... And so what we basically came to the conclusion, it makes sense why you would have to clean... Why does a janitor have to come in and clean the hopper popper if it's not getting gross other than dirt from somebody's shoe? That's a different problem than actual like yeah. poop, right? Right. But when you flush and it sprays and there's no lid on the commercial s- toilet, then you're actually having to clean something of worthiness. <laughs> so that's we went down that rabbit hole to understand that. Got it. So the it, the the hopper popper does add an element of of work to the janitor. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so we're, what we're trying to do is create the product so that it can reduce entirely the need to clean the actual pedal. One of the things we're talking about as your quote unquote sexiness is do we put something that potentially is a bubble that goes over you know the pedal so that when your foot is underneath it, it's all protected by the plastic. So when you go and clean, it's just one clean wipe over like a bubble, something like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, as long as it doesn't make the functionality worse. Exactly. I really think that this is function over form. Mm-hmm. So I hear you're like wanting to make it sleek. But f- fundamentally what I don't want is I don't want it to be any more complicated to try to slide my foot into some wedged position. Yeah, you don't. Hey, good use, use of wedge. Way to, mm-hmm. way to marry both of my lives together. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had one of the best things in my life happen. I uh, was on a call with a partner for Wedge, and they said, "Hey, little uncomfortable. I hope you're okay with me asking." And I'm, I'm willing. I'll, I'll talk about anything. So it was like, I, I hope you're okay with me asking. But I see that you're also in the toilet business. Can we talk about that? So this woman is giving a speech around uh, hygiene in the hygiene in the organization from an HR's perspective. So she was coming to me as a de facto person for advice because of my HR tech background and my bathroom background. So I think I've, I think I've, <laughs> that's a well rounded resume. Oh my goodness. It's well, let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> what do you think nature versus nurture for an entrepreneur? I'm always, I'm always interested in exploring the psychology of an entrepreneur, what leads someone to, to want to live this life? What do you attribute? Do you, th- do you think you were born with this gene, this entrepreneurial gene, or do you think it was traumatized into you? I mean, you and I have talked about this offline. I, I like your answer on the comment of freedom, right? You seek freedom in so much of what you want to do. And I think as I've, you know, my, my first taste for entrepreneurship was mowing two or three lawns and making more money than I could on a, you know, whole Wendy shift, right? I could go make being outside, listening to music, sitting on lawnmower, a hundred bucks mowing three lawns than I could go work a weekend shift of something I don't want to do. So my first, there was nothing, you know, glamorous or super thoughtful or anything related to that. But then I started to realize like I can legitimately have my own canvas of what I want to go create. So I think maybe where you err on the side of like the the view in the world and freedom, I err on the side of thinking of like, I now have no limitations of what I can create. One day I can spend time thinking about HR tech, right? And it's a software company. And I think about the rapid, so we're, with Wedge, we're talking about stepping into the um, uh, 
the med tech space about interacting between patient and doctors and asynchronous video. I have no limitations to have those conversations. One day we can be talking about how to commercialize the hopper popper and go to China and produce it or, you know, whatever. And so to me, the, the such joy of the entrepreneur experience is that I have zero limitations. Yes, freedom, but it's like truly creating and it can be any number of different things. Now I have a hundred bad, I have a hundred ideas and probably two of them are worth talking about, but I'm saying it's the freedom to be able to speak about so many different things, pursue so many different ideas. I just, that's what gets me fired up. So I think that every entrepreneur not only has something they're running towards. Mm -hmm. So I hear you saying I'm running towards creativity. I'm running towards imagination. But I think every entrepreneur also has things they're running from. Oh, absolutely. What do you think you're running from? Hmm. I knew I knew at some point something like this was going to come up, so I was trying to do the best I possibly could to prepare, but no way, no way possible. I think, I think just being contained. Like I, I get really, really, really freaked out in a circumstance where I feel limited. I don't necessarily mind not always having control. For example, if you and I were doing business together, I would be comfortable if you were in control. But I would not be comfortable if I felt contained, right? So I right. think so I much, that. so much of my, and those are two very different things, and I think often misunderstood. And so I think you know, on the trauma question, like I don't know if there's any like family back history or anything like that, but I think the biggest thing for me is like I just can't feel like I'm in an environment where I feel like I'm being contained. Education was undergraduate education. I wish I could go back and do it because the whole time I felt contained, where I actually could have pursued it as a creative way to learn. But I didn't think about that at the time. I was thinking about if this is a mold, you know, this is what you have to go through. This is the process you have to get done. As soon as you're done, okay, you check box, you're done over with. That was miserable. Education was fine. I got through it. But like, I wish I could go back and rethink it the way I think about entrepreneurship is saying, I can go create, I can go learn. I mean, that that side of things. And so I think, you know, the biggest thing that I'm running away from is just the concept of anything that's going to contain me. What did you study in college? I was in economics, management, and leadership that was my education. So okay, I think- so you you hated your education in many ways. You're just grinding it out. Mm-hmm. If you could, if you could go back and have a conversation with your 18 year old self, say you're about to go to college, what do you tell him? Read to learn, not to get a grade. So what do you study? I would have studied. I think I would have added. I actually loved what I studied. I actually think that was a great choice. I think I probably would have added. Uh, some form of either um, psychology, like I've thought about potentially going and getting my PhD in like IO psychology, not necessarily to use it, but because that's fascinating to me. So I would- What kind of psychology? Um, industrial organizational psychology. Ah, industrial yeah, yeah. organization. Yeah. Yep. So that stuff's fascinating to me. So I think I would have paired like behavioral economics, for example, is, is combining, you know, psychology and economics. Those are, that would be a joy. I wish I would have studied a thesis just on that alone. So, or like game theory in econ. Do you study that stuff now? Uh, that's when I, when I default to listening to podcasts, stuff like that is what I listen to a lot. Game theory and the psychology of economics. You and I both committed a crime and a cop pulls us into the room. You benefit from lying. I benefit from lying. We benefit the most if we both tell the truth. And so you throw us in a room and you ask your, you know, you, you have, you have a desire to not tell the truth as long as I do tell the truth. But if we both lie, then we, you know, we both go to jail for extended. I mean, so understanding the psychologies of people, but that's also how they make purchasing decisions. That's also how partnerships happen. That's also that stuff. Oh, gets me going. You love that. Stuff. I love that stuff. All right. Um, what kind of advice do you give to younger entrepreneurs than you? I mean, you're a young entrepreneur, but I'm sure that because you've had success, people are coming to you. You're the, you know, entrepreneur of the year in Grand Rapids this year. <laughs> 
So what are, what are you telling the young Grand Rapids kids who are like, Matt, how'd you do it? I think um, my advice, and this is still a reminder to myself today, so much of my success came from other people supporting me. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So like, for example, you, the relationship we've gained, the wisdom that I've learned from you as an entrepreneur, successes and failures in your experience, that is invaluable level of education, right? And there, there's, there's no book I could ever read. There's no other than just spending time with you. So I think for me, what I did throughout school that I think I'm, I'm super proud of is like twice a week I met with two new people. I met with two new people a week, every single week. And I still try to do that today, whether it's phone calls. It's one of the reasons why I started my own podcast was that I can just literally sit and learn and soak people, you know, soak in information and that side of things. So my, my recommendation to young entrepreneurs or quite frankly, just anybody in general is go meet two new people a week. And so that's where I learn. I learn from other people. I learn from interactions where some people may learn from studying or listening, but I learn from just hearing stories from people. And so for me, just, and, and, and then the network effect, the people, you know, you start building bigger and bigger and bigger empire of people that you know, and that creates a very, very, very valuable, you know, just path that you can launch a business, start something. I mean, that, that gets really fun. Who are some of the entrepreneurs that you most admire? Well, since you've referenced my award, I was going to say you, but I don't think I can give you that ego anymore. <laughs> no, I would say I would say um, you would be one. My my uncle, um, who owns the manufacturer, uh, is definitely one because he was like 4 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day and always made it back to his kids' uh, basketball games. I mean, he just you couldn't you couldn't outwork him. He may not have been the smartest. He may not have been the most resourceful, but you couldn't outwork him. So somebody like that. I, I have a huge amount of respect for. Um, there's a guy named Wade Burgess, uh, who's one of our investors and advisors, um, who is somebody who has found a way to juggle being a, a dad, who's juggled being an entrepreneur. He's an advisor and still will take my call every time you know I need his help. And I, I, I have a huge amount of respect for him. I also think like... About famous entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do love Musk because it's, I love the fact, like, I don't really care all that much about Tesla. Like, that's awesome. I think they're going to change the world. But I love how straight up he had, if you listen to his podcast, he, his podcast he did with Rogan, Rogan asked him the question. So he's talking about digging a pit in uh, one of their LA parking lots. And Rogan's like, what do you, like, who's it? whose approval did you just get for, like did you have to go get to like dig this major hole in la you had to get permits he's like no i just dug a pit and he's like no no like who, who did you have to talk to what building you know he's like i just did it that i've I, that is like if i could if i could re rethink that reimagine that over and over again is i think one of the coolest things is that he is going to no matter what accomplish what he wants and he like the grit the focus the just like kind of blinders of this is exactly what I'm going to go do is I think just absolutely phenomenal. I, you know, I, I, I was, <laughs> I did, I wrote this article and one of the things I was talking about was I actually would love, to, I'd rather meet Jeff Bezos's assistant than Jeff Bezos, to be honest. Why is that? I think Jeff Bezos is super well documented. I think everything you're going to ask him or hear about him is like, pretty cliche. I'm not saying he isn't brilliant or wouldn't be awesome to meet with, but I'd love to meet with a person who keeps up with him and hear that. You know, I think in sports, for example, I think a defensive back is a more impressive position than a wide receiver. 
because wide receiver takes the first step, but defensive back has to react to it. So I think the same thing with like somebody's assistant. I'd rather learn from that person because they're going to give you the maybe not publicly, but they're going to give you the raw of like this is what this person actually interacts with. This is what this person not just their world's interpretation, but actually how they interact with other people, how they actually you know does he actually work twenty hours a day or does he really only work six hours a day? Because I think just fa- I think that would be fascinating to spend time with somebody like that. If his assistant would tell you any of those things, that assistant should be fired. Exactly right. Exactly right. They're not going to. But that's that's why I think I would love to learn from somebody like that. You'd like the candid behind-the-scenes version. Really, though, you just want the candid behind-the-scenes version of Bezos. Exactly. I bet people get that. I mean, I don't think you can be that level of successful human without having a really deep self-awareness. Really? Do you think Musk is self-aware? I think Musk is very self-aware. Oh, I would almost say the opposite. I would say he's incredibly unself-aware, which is well, one of the... Well, he's, he's not diplomatic. Sure. And what do you, tell me what you mean by self-aware. Um, I guess the, the crosswords I have here is like, is this person... Does this person have any regards for the way that they're interpreted in the world? Do they understand when I'm in this room... I haven't, if I say something and you raise an eyebrow, I actually at least care enough to think about that. Whereas I don't think Musk cares about that at all. Now, I, I, I love that he doesn't because I think he's going to accomplish some amazing things. But I would say... But, but is not caring about what other people think not self-aware? Not necessarily. I do agree with you on that. Right. That's I think, I think Elon is incredibly self-aware. He just doesn't necessarily care how, who he is. Mm-hmm affects you yep he doesn't take responsibility for that he takes responsibility for knowing himself and choosing accordingly is that fair or no you think that's a bad read of him no i think that's i think that's fair i mean yeah i i just i also don't think we're all i don't think we're as people very good at actually going back to our memory and experience and articulating what they like, what we truly feel. So like, think about your, your career of the most highs and the most stressed you've ever been. Do you think you would be capable of actually pulling what you were feeling, how you reacted, you know, your stress, your, the success you experienced? Do you think you'd be able to actually articulate that to somebody else to come in? A hundred percent. Yes. I don't think many people can. I think even as I go back to some of my, my experiences, I can share the story of what I've processed and how I process it, but I don't think that would actually be all that accurate. That'd be my guess. So you don't think that you have personal self-awareness of what you're actually feeling? I think my three-year, four-year, five-year storytelling capability changes. I think people, when they look back on, for example, traumatic experience, and I would consider a lot of like entrepreneurship traumatic to be honest so i think you better love trauma exactly that's the whole point and so specifically talking about like that experience not necessarily other things in life but thinking of your entrepreneur experience as trauma right the whole thing highs and lows of trauma i don't think people do that good of job at going back to trauma and actually being able to flesh out what they were experiencing at the time accurately enough to depict to somebody else what they were feeling that'd be i'm still jury's still out on how I feel about that, but that's... I think that's really interesting because when I think of the people 
that I consider to be the best entrepreneurs, I think they have really deep self-awareness and really deep self-awareness about those specific things you're talking about, which is the traumas that impacted them and how they felt about those experiences, both in their youth and in their adult lives and having a deep awareness of what they want to change in the world, mostly for their own emotional needs that results in then entrepreneurial activity that has drive. So I think that drive at the core is a desire to change the world into what you emotionally want it to be. The emotionally want it to be is a really interesting thing to think about there. Do you think, do you think Bezos and Musk think about the world as a, this is the world that I want to create in a people experiencing that world? Or do you think it's, I want humans to have access to electric cars across all humanity. Well, I think there's there's a difference between the messaging mm-hmm. and even the philosophy. Yeah. Right? Because from Musk, you'll hear a lot of philosophy. For sure. But I would bet that if you could catch him in a candid moment when he felt safe, mm-hmm. felt like you were a safe human being to reveal his true humanity to, I would venture to believe that he could articulate what was driving him emotionally to change the world into what he's changed it into and what he's continuing to try to change it into because otherwise he wouldn't have the motivation to get up in the morning. I don't believe that ideas and thoughts and logic are motivation. I agree with that. That that fades out pretty quickly. Right. That's unsustainable. For sure. You have to have a passion and passion really is born from a deep hunger, Mm -hmm. a deep desire to make your life different. That's what we love about all these movies about people overcoming trauma. Oh yeah. You know, Braveheart and 300 and (laughs) right. Gladiator, right. It take, it take, they, they, they overcome trauma and then they're emotionally driven to eradicate or transform. And we relate to that. Yep. And I think that's that, that if we think that entrepreneurs are robots, then we're not thinking about entrepreneurs in the right way. Yeah, I, in my own experience, find entrepreneurs to be remarkably emotional people. It's not always seen, but I think I think at the heart of every entrepreneur is actually a pretty emotional. I think I think that I think that definitely exists for sure, and I would say those guys experience that for sure. Right. So now, do you think in this definition of self awareness? then do we think Elon is self-aware? Again, not knowing Elon, you know, we're totally speculating based on all our public experience of Elon Musk. Yeah, like I don't think if he was sitting in the room, he would be uninterested in you. I think he would sit in the room and be interested. In, like I, I think he would be, I think he'd be interested in you as a person. I think he'd be fascinated by like, for example, what you built here. I don't think he'd be uninterested. I just... Well, again, that's a very different. Whether he's right. interested in me, I'm not sure if he would give anything. Right. You know, right? We right, care right, at all, right. care at all about you know my life or Black Hall Studios or any of the tiny little entrepreneurial things I've done relative to his gargantuan achievements. I don't think this always equates, but this is definitely turning the conversation in a dicey way. I think social awareness doesn't always. I so many entrepreneurs get divorces, for example. 
And I think that's a huge reason why they aren't that social, or that they aren't very socially aware is because maybe, and I'm not pointing to anyone in particular, but maybe the, like, for example, even the thought of, Hey, what are the repercussions of getting married? What are the repercussions of, you know, only spending an hour a week with my spouse? I think that's one of the reasons why I probably wouldn't consider now just because you have a happy marriage doesn't necessarily mean you're not a socially aware person. I don't want to necessarily draw those two things together, but or that, or that you get divorced doesn't mean you're necessarily socially unaware. Exactly. Exactly. Right. But I think you might be totally aware of exactly what you're doing. Right. hundred percent. Right. So now it's an emotional question, right? What do you value more? Yep. Do you value your entrepreneurial journey more or your marriage more? So then do you think, let's take that a step further. Do you think those guys felt pain by going through the divorce? Do you think they, do you think Jeff Bezos, when he actually, you know, leading up to that, do you think he felt pain by the divorce process? Well, all divorce has pain. Sure. So I can't imagine anybody getting divorced and not having pain, whether or not they had pain about not living with their spouse. Yep. That's completely different. For sure. Right. So, um, I think lots of people get married and feel joy about not having to spend any more time with that person who was once their spouse. Yep. And I wouldn't be surprised if Jeff and or Elon felt those feelings where they were like, felt incredible relief about not having to continue living their lives with someone that they didn't find emotionally um, gratifying for sure or emotionally joy inducing. Right. But at the same time, you can't go through divorce and not have pain. So, um, they must have believed, emo- again, emotionally believing, they must have emotionally, emotionally believed that not being married to that person would give them a greater chance at actual human happiness. And that's where I, you know, you can always play the, you should have done, you could have done, or hindsight is one of the dumbest things in the world. But that's where I go back and I wonder to myself if those people, if, if those two guys, for example, were focusing on those two if they were socially aware enough to recognize bringing somebody else into their life if they could do that appropriately or not whether it's what they gained that they thought they were gaining from that person faded out two years later 10 years later 15 25 years whatever the timeline is or also just the idea of hey this person is coming to my into my life and i have to change that to bring come into that person do this thought experiment with me let's say you get married yeah okay and let's say you've been married for nine years. Mm-hmm. And at the end of nine years, your spouse comes to you and says, Matt, I think my chance at happiness, real human happiness, is better if we get divorced. Yep. What do you say? The first thing I would think would be impossible, I guess, knowing myself, I guess, whether I would know myself well or not, the first thing I would ask myself is what led up to that? And is there anything that is in my control that could be fixed? Now, if we had had that conversation. So, so say that. So, so now I, we're doing this thought experiment. So you're saying to your spouse, she says, I think that I have a better chance at real human happiness yep. if we get divorced. And you say, what could I have done differently? Correct. What else do you say? Well, I'd first want to explore... Are you wanting to try to save this? Yeah. So is that the first thing you say? You say, I would like to try to save our marriage. For sure. 
So then, also, the, so then what's the second thing? I got to give you the, I got to give you the bias. I have not been married. I haven't experienced this. That's why it's a thought experiment. Exactly. So that that it's easy for me to come into this very naively and say this is exactly what my go-to reaction is. My first reaction would be yeah, let's try to save this, but even first before that even even if she's no matter what, here's the paperwork, I'm out the door. My first reaction would be, how could I have done this differently? Even even if there is no saving grace here, no matter what, that's my first reaction. Why do you think your first reaction isn't, honey, if you think your human happiness has a better chance of being achieved by us getting divorced, then I think we should get divorced. Selfishly, because I'm going to interact with somebody else, whether it's marriage, whether it's... Uh, business partner whether it's just people my first reaction is i caused in some way shape or form you pain now whether it's a two-way street but i cause you at least not enough happiness in your life i should figure out is there anything i could have done better to improve that and i say i'm again playing your your uh, future wife <laughs> i say you wouldn't make a great future wife no for me, it'd so. be terrible yeah i know terrible well, yeah, yeah yeah it's his breath that's the problem mm -hmm. <laughs> so Let's imagine. So then I say, listen, Matt, it's nothing you've done. You've been an amazing husband. I just realized that I probably should have never been married because I'm an adventuring single person at, at the core of my soul. And being married has felt so limiting to my soul. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to take any personal responsibility for this. I feel like you've done an amazing job relative to, you know, our marriage. I just feel like I'm being asked by the universe to seek a different happiness. One of my greatest gifts is the ability to compartmentalize. Excuse me. I think that's a unique gift to me that I can compartmentalize things super well. I am not mature enough to be able to compartmentalize that. If somebody were to say that to me. Right. That would bleed into everything that I've done, and I would ask myself again, even if even if that was the statement, I would ask myself, what could have what could I have improved in that circumstance, or even maybe even further back? I don't again the trauma, uh, the, the beginning to assume what trauma would have happened. I would have even asked myself, where what did I miss? Of course, no, I understand that. And so that I mean, for example, I've got a, an ex employee that I fired. I still can't to this day remove some of the what did I miss and also how was I a bad leader that didn't set that person up for success. That's one area I'm not able to compartmentalize. So I, I guess my answer to that question is I don't know if I I would if that person in you know in their life straight up said there's no way I could be happy not miserable married to you and I need to move on and I had no choice in that process. I don't think no matter what I'd be able to accept that in my in my own heart and say there isn't something I could have done, or I had to have done something better. I could have done something better. So when we talk about the Hopper Popper, mm -hmm. right, it's first edition. Yep. Being not perfect. Yep. And the 2.0 getting better and the 3.0 getting better. You don't seem to take any of that personally. One of the, one of the most, um, like, borderline, well, this, this, I'll call this trauma, but, like, borderline shaky like reactions was when I had an employee mow the first lawn on like for the company and they didn't do a good job. Are you a perfectionist? I don't think so, but I am a, I don't think so either. I mean, I don't think uh, perfectionists make good entrepreneurs. No, not at all. There's I too don't much failure and ugliness. I think I take obsessive ownership over things. Hmm. 
how much of that is virtue and how much of that is ego? I don't know. What's your interpretation of that? You know me well enough, I know. Well, I mean, I think, you know, are you 26 now? 26. You're 26, so, I mean, it'd be shocking if some of it wasn't ego. For sure. Right? Because it'd be the incredibly rare. You're an incredibly rare 26-year-old already, the things you're doing. But from a psychological standpoint, it would be the incredibly rare 26-year-old who wasn't doing a lot of things um, out of ego. Yeah. Yep. I think I'm so, still on the rise of my career that I'm trying to gain my own steam for sure. And I, well, yeah. I think, I mean, I think you having incredibly good instincts towards true entrepreneurial virtue, which is a desire for excellence mm-hmm. and excellence for its own sake or excellence for creativity or excellence for imagination, right? All of these beautiful ways of imagining entrepreneurial life. But, um, when I hear your response to your wife saying, I think my happiness might be in a different direction. That response feels more ego driven than when I say the hopper popper needs to be attached to the floor yep. in order to be better. I don't hear an ego response. You're like, all right, let's make it better. Yep. Right. And what's, what's surprising to me. And I think what's worth psychologically exploring is why your response in this thought experiment of your wife wouldn't be, Hey, let's make it better. If you think you know how to make your life better, I'm all for it. I'm 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 for you. Yep. I think one of my biggest fears as an entrepreneur is starting a bunch of companies that fail without me. And it's not that I need to hold on to them, but I think that's one thing that I'm going through. Like for example, Wedge at some point is going to be acquired by somebody else. So I'm spending all of my energy setting it up to be a machine that doesn't require me anymore. Right. And so I think one of my biggest fears though is the business holds up because of me in the business. How can I build the business so that it no longer needs me in the business and it's a machine, right? If you're not at Black Hall t- tomorrow, it's going to still be here, right? It runs like a machine. Exactly. And so I think one thing that I'm spending so much of my energy, probably fear-driven, is I don't want to create a bunch of things that as soon as I had my success and I moved on from it, they just fell on their face, you know, fell on their face, deflated, blah, blah, blah. That to me is a I think an appropriate, but a genuine fear. Makes sense. Tell me one thing that would make you incredibly happy if you woke up on your 30th birthday and it was true. Be recording volume two of the podcast with Ryan Millsap. (laughs) (laughs) I think, uh, I think, uh, Lord willing, I would love to be, uh, married. I'd love to have a couple kids. I think, also, I would love to be involved in whether it was one or many, doesn't, that doesn't matter to me, one or many, that I have true influence over businesses. And I think I'm, quite frankly, pretty close to that now. But I think that, to me, like I love what I do. And I'm super fortunate that at a pretty young age, You're good at it. I'm able to do some of that stuff. But I think... I think the next step where probably the ego removes is how can I set up myself to create that for other people? I mean, for example, Black Hall alone, just buying a bunch of hopper poppers, you you have encouraged me to do that in my own life, right? You have encouraged one step towards the hopper popper succeeding and me creating something, right? I want to do that with as many different companies as I possibly can, or people. It doesn't necessarily have to be companies, but people. That to me would be cool. Maddie, we're out of time. I'll tell you what, um, you have a huge future as an entrepreneur. You're going to be a fantastic father. (laughs) 
and um, I can't wait to see all of your practical journey, psychological journey, and it's a uh, privilege to call you a friend. Right back at you. Thank you for having me. Uh, if people want to find you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, LinkedIn, just Matt Baxter. I have a podcast. Ryan has been a guest twice on the Matt Baxter Show. Super creative. Uh, I guess if you really want to follow my dog pictures on Instagram, you can. Matt C. Baxter, and that's it. I love it. Actually, um, Matt's podcast, I think, was the first podcast, but it might have been Sarah's podcast was the first podcast I was on. Really? Yeah, I can't remember. Wow. Well, some one of those ways is how the Black Hole Studios podcast emerged was just um, being on Matt's podcast, talking about a bunch of stuff, Matt encouraging me, saying, you guys should have a podcast, helping me set this up, uh, talking to Sarah, who's our producer, and um, here we are. Here we are. The world is small, and <laughs> everything comes back around. That's right. Well, thanks again for being here, and um, really, really appreciate your time. Can't wait to uh, go have dinner with you tonight. Can't wait. (laughs) All right. Talk to you soon. Putting an exclamation point on the end of each podcast, I share inspirational sayings that I write on Instagram. Never confuse the value of a present situation with eternal love. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Millsap.